Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. That'd be great. All right, Shabbat Shalom. I want to welcome everyone at home as well, watching on YouTube. I want to give a big uh, shout out, a big thanks to our, our youth music team for an awesome worship set today. Thank you. God has, has amazingly uh, gifted uh, many of, of our youth with, uh, with fantastic musical ability. And they, they're our priests. Uh, and they lead us in, into the Lord's presence uh, through their worship. So, so thank you very much. Uh, we are in a series uh, on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, today's part five. Um, let's look today at the fruit of patience. Uh, and to get to that theme, we're going to look at a, a, the, probably the classic text on patience in the scriptures, James chapter 5. So James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Uh, and we have, we have it in the overhead as well. Uh, and in Yaakov, uh, uh, James says this. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of, of Eov, of Job's perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Amen. Now, as I said, we're looking today at the, at the fruit of the spirit of patience. Uh, and, of course, we live in a culture that's the exact opposite of that today, right? <laughs> we live in a culture that does not value patience. Indeed, we live in a culture of, of impatience. You know, for example, let's say you have a computer uh, that can power up in five seconds. Another computer company comes along and powers up in, in three seconds. That first computer company will go out of business overnight. <laughs> if a company uh, can get you a product through the mail in three days, another company comes along and gets it to you uh, in two days, that first company is very soon going to be bankrupt. <laughs> Our high-tech economy cultivates impatience. It encourages impatience. It invents and markets products designed to appeal to your impatience. And we punish any business that can't give you that extra two seconds you desperately need when powering up your computer. <laughs> and especially in big cities like, like, like Dallas, like we're in, uh, uh, we're, we live a very, very hurried life. Uh, I remember the first time uh, I visited our, our, our law firm office in New York City. I saw people in the, in the, in the uh, building running up and down the escalators. <laughs> American business culture, American culture in general, is built upon a hurried and frenetic pace of life uh, and impatience. Uh, we need instant results uh, and instant gratification. We don't like to wait. Uh, and any business or store or product that shortens your wait time will generally do very well. We live in a culture that does not value patience. But all the ancient cultures did. All the ancient cultures valued patience. Uh, impatient people were considered shallow uh, and, and unwilling or unable to take the time to, to think about things deeply. 
Inpatient people were considered reckless uh, and prone to make mistakes and stupid choices and to miss all sorts of opportunities. Uh, And many of us even have memories of our own inpatients where it brought about problems or relationship issues or, or, or business or economic loss. So patience is important even though we live in a culture of impatience. Now this passage here is going to tell us how we can get patience. It's written by James Yaakov, the biological half-brother of Yeshua, and the leader of the Messianic community in Jerusalem. Uh, And here in chapter 5, he's exhorting us to be patient. Uh, In this passage, on the overhead, we're going to learn uh, three things. Number one, what patience is. We can put it on the over, okay. There we go. What patience is. Uh, Number two, why it's so crucial, why it's important. And three, how you can develop it, how you can cultivate it. So, So what it is. Uh, why it's important, and how we can cultivate it. Number one, what patience is. This passage is divided into two parts. Each part uses actually a different word uh, for patience and a different illustration. So the first half of the passage, verses 7 to 9, uses the illustration of a farmer. Uh, And farmers show patience. Why? Well, Well, farmers plant. They don't expect a harvest right away. They have to wait. Uh, The farmer can't reap too soon. So it's a good example of patience. And the Greek word that we have the overhead here, the Greek word that's used in this first passage, verses 7 to 9, is, is actually the word, is the word macrothumia, or macrothumia, which literally means long-suffering. And the opposite of long-suffering is then immediately mentioned in verse 9, grumbling. So look at James 5, verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Grumbling is a lack of patience. Don't grumble. Now, now what is grumbling? When people are frustrating to you, uh, when people are disappointing, when people are disillusioning, uh, how do you respond? Grumbling is one response. Uh, sometimes it's outward, uh, but, but many times you do it just inside your heart. Uh, so on the overhead, grumbling is responding to people who disappoint you and frustrate you, responding with resentment and negativity and cynicism. Now, why is that a failure of long-suffering? Why is grumbling a lack of patience? Because grumbling means, basically, you've given up on people. Uh, even though they're frustrating, instead of continuing to love them uh, and, and pull for them and care for them, instead you give up on them. You write them off, you stop pulling for them. And this is really important to see. Most of us can recognize a grudge. Most of us know when we hate someone, when we're mad at someone. And if someone frustrates us and disappoints us and we get angry, uh, we have a grudge, that's one thing. Uh, And that's bad. Uh, That's also a lack of patience. But grumbling is something much broader uh, and much more common uh, and much more subtle. Uh, And therefore, much more dangerous. Grumbling means because of the way someone has frustrated you or disappointed you or disillusioned you or infuriated you, you've just written them off. Uh, you're detached. You're not long-suffering. Uh, you're not sticking with them. Uh, and you're cynical about them and you're grumpy. <laughs> Is there anyone, when you see them approaching you from a distance, uh, that immediately within your heart, you start to say, Oh, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or, oh, no, not them. <laughs> what do you think that is? That is a serious lack of patience. You've given up on them. 
It's also a serious lack of love. That's why impatience is so wrong. So the first of, first of all, this, this aspect of, of patience is being patient with people. Uh, patience is when people are frustrating and, and disappointing to you, you don't give up on them. You forgive them. You're gracious to them. But that's not all that patience is. One aspect of patience is patience with, with frustrating and disappointing people, and our responses are supposed to be gracious and forgiving. The second paragraph in our text, uh, James 5, 10 to 11, shows another aspect of patience. And here James takes the prophets as an example. So look at James 5, verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the, ne- the Nevaim, the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered, uh, uh, and, and you've heard of Job's perseverance, and see what the Lord finally brought about there. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So in the second half of our text, uh, Job is the example here, and, and not the farmer. Uh, and, and Job's problems were not primarily about how he was treated with, by people, uh, but by life in general, uh, and even by God. He didn't so much experience difficult people, he experienced tragic circumstances. So there was a disaster that wiped out all, all of his, a series of disasters that wiped out all of his wealth, uh, and then a, a natural disaster that, that killed off his children. And that he was himself afflicted with disease and lost his health. So he lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his health. And he's screaming and he's crying out. That's Job. And with this kind of patience, a different Greek word is used uh, than the first half of the text in verses 7 to 9. And the English translators recognize the different word is being used here. And they translate it as perseverance. Let's look at James 5.11. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. This Greek word is not the word macrothumia, uh, which means long-suffering. On the overhead, uh, this word for patience here is the word hypomone, which means literally to hyperstand in place. To hyperstand in place. Here's an example. You're in a battle, and your commanding officer says to you, you stand right here and you occupy this position. And no matter what they throw at you, No matter how fierce the attack, you cannot retreat. You cannot give ground. You cannot even lose a step. Because if the enemy gets past you, everything is lost. The town is lost. The army is lost. The war is lost. You have to stand there. You have to fight. You cannot give in no matter what. That's hupomone. That's what it means that the hyper stand. So one 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 aspect of patience is patience with difficult people. Another aspect of patience is patience with difficult circumstances. So on the overhead, when circumstances are terrible, when life goes wrong, when circumstances are extremely disappointing and infuriating, here's what patience is. It's to unflinchingly live the way you know you ought to live. To do the things you know you ought to do. And to be the person you ought to be anyway. To hyperstand, to stay put and to not give up. So here's two aspects of patience on the overhead here, according to James. Number one is patience includes patience with people, difficult people, responding to difficult people with grace and forgiveness. And number two, patience is also patience in, in difficult circumstances uh, and with the will of God and responding with courage and trust. So that's patience, two aspects of patience. And the overhead. Now, now, why is this such a big deal? Is the second point. Over, uh, why does James make such a big deal out of this? Because this is a big deal. 
James doesn't treat impatience as something that's just impractical. He, he describes it as a terrible evil. Look at James 5, verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, James brings in judgment day when talking about impatience and grumbling. And he says, you'll be, uh, he says we'll be condemned for our impatience. So why is impatience so bad? Why is it so serious? You know, almost every day, probably some multiple times per day, you're going to meet with difficult, frustrating, disappointing, disillusioning, infuriating people and circumstances. You're going to be frustrated and disappointed every day probably with something. Sometimes multiple times a day. And when that happens, you're going to respond one way or another in your heart. It happens within your heart. You respond. There's only one of two ways to respond when disappointments happen. You can either trust God or you can trust yourself uh, on the overhead. You can either trust God's timing uh, and God's schedule and God's wisdom. Or you can trust your assessment uh, and your schedule and your timing and what you think should happen. You can respond to the difficulty by either trusting God or trusting yourself. Now, what does it actually sound like in your heart? Here's what it sounds like. On the one hand, uh, if you're to trust the Lord when terrible things, frustrating things, disappointing things happen, you need, you need to talk to God and to process it. You need to say, Lord, you're in control. You alone know all things. You see far more than me. Uh, you see the end from the beginning. You see the big picture. Uh, your ways are not my ways. Your ways are higher than mine. Uh, uh, your wisdom is far greater than mine. You have a reason for allowing everything, whether I understand it or not, whether I can see it or not. And I choose to trust in you despite my suffering uh, or frustration or sorrow or tribulation or disappointment. I would never have chosen this for myself, but I trust in you, Lord, through it all. You know what you're doing. I don't have your knowledge. Elizabeth Elliot, in her uh, book, No Graven Image, on the overhead, uh, she writes this about bad things happening to you. She says this, God is God. If he is God, he's worthy of my worship and my service. And I find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Here's what, she's, here's what she's saying. Bad things happen to you. And here's what you need to say to your heart. If I don't learn to trust God in this, in these bad things, I will find no rest. Only if I believe God knows what he's doing. And he's far wiser than me. He knows infinitely. He sees the end from the beginning. I don't know what should happen. I don't have his wisdom or his perspective. So I submit to you, Lord. Only if you humble yourself, we'd be able to handle these things, uh, all these lives of life's disappointments. Because impatience is ultimately a huge lack of humility on the overhead. Only if you humble yourself and say, I don't know. God knows. God is God. And I'll find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Only then will you be able to handle life's disappointments. 
and frustrations and setbacks with patience and long-suffering and standing your ground. If you speak to your heart like this, you will have calm in the midst of the storm. And you will have peace. You will have shalom. You will have Noah, our portion today. You will have rest. Now, the other thing your heart can do, the opposite thing your heart can do when bad things happen, instead of trusting God and his assessment and his wisdom, is to trust your own wisdom. And trust about what you think should happen. You can trust your wisdom and your schedule and your expectations and your timing and your will rather than God's. Now, if you're a believer, when bad things happen, you don't actually say internally, well, I'm going to trust myself. You don't expressly word it like that. (laughs) But trusting yourself internally sounds maybe something like this. Not again. That is not fair. Uh, it's not fair. I can't believe it. What does God think he's doing? That's an example of trusting yourself. Now you say, wait a minute, David. That's my normal reaction. (laughs) Yes, of course it is. That's my point. (laughs) You think you know what everyone deserves. You think you know what should happen. And you know exactly how your life should turn out. Uh, uh, and how the world should turn. And ultimately, as I said, this is a lack of humility. Now, every time something bad happens, or something, something disappointing or frustrating happens, you'll respond every time, either by trusting God or trusting yourself. Trusting, trusting God's wisdom or trusting your own wisdom. Now, this leads to something. Trusting God leads eventually to shalom, to rest, to peace, to calm the ability to forgive. But if you give into the flesh and you trust yourself, you become over time eaten up with resentment and self-pity uh, and cynicism and anxiety uh, with restlessness and eventually probably with ulcers and heart attacks. <laughs> you see why this is so important. Everyday situations arise which require you to choose to either trust yourself or to trust God. Every day. And it's often invisible to you. So James 5 verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Literally this phrase stand firm. Means means to establish your heart. Uh, In other words. This happens inside your heart. Not outside in the world. Uh, The grumbling comes from within. It often doesn't even show up on your face. The cynicism. The self-absorption. Uh, The self-pity, because of all that's going wrong, this generally does not happen on the outside. It happens within you. And yet these little decisions every day are pushing you down one way or another, either toward the Lord and being conformed to his image or toward more self-absorption, more self-pity, more unhappiness, more self-centeredness, more towards what C.S. Lewis famously calls the hell of eternal autobiography. Constantly looking at yourself. Uh, what I'm getting, uh, what I'm not getting, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting that. Uh, people aren't giving me what I should have. Uh, what a terrible failure I am. Constantly thinking about yourself. So in the overhead, do you see why this is so important? Because whether you're patient or impatient with your, with your circumstances today uh, is ultimately, in the long run, a battle for your soul. 
There's a battle happening within you. Now hear me well. You're on this, in this battle, your heart is not on your side. Your heart is not neutral. Your heart will naturally go in the direction of impatience. It'll naturally go in the direction of self-pity. Uh, it'll naturally go in the direction of, of, of you know what should happen best. Your heart is not naturally humble. It will take you down. It will take you down to this horrible end state. And no one is better depicted, by the way, that horrible end state of impatience and grumbling and self-absorption than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce, by the way, is this fictional account of people from hell who take a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. I get a chance to talk to people who they, who they had known on the earth. Uh, the people in heaven come down to, to the outskirts of heaven to convince them to stay in heaven. But none of the people from hell choose to stay. In the end, they all get back on the bus at the end of the day. <laughs> choosing to return to hell. Now again, this is a fictional account. C.S. Lewis doesn't believe this really happens. <laughs> but it's a brilliant device to say certain things about the human heart. And there are narrators and guides in the book uh, that accompany these various people and allow you, the reader, to listen in on and to hear their conversations. And at a certain point in the book, uh, there's a woman from hell who meets up with another woman, an old friend, who's now in heaven. And the woman in heaven meets her old friends at the outskirts of heaven, tries to invite her friend to accompany her up to heaven, but the first woman never even hears the invitation. Because she won't stop talking. <laughs> she talks nonstop. She's totally self-centered, totally self-absorbed. Here's what she says. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't even know how I, how I ended up here. I was coming to meet uh, uh, that Eleanor Stone. We were supposed to meet up at the corner of 6th Street. Uh, I made it perfectly clear, because I know what she's like. And I told her once, I told her a thousand times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful Marjorie Banks house. After all, the way she treated me. Uh, and, I've, and I've been dying to tell you, because I felt surely you would know and understand that I agree that I acted rightly. Uh, now, now, my dear, wait a minute, I'm not done, my dear. I tried living with her, you know, when I first came down to London. It was all fixed up. She was shielded with the cooking. I was going to look after the house. I thought I'd be comfortable after all I'd been through. But she turned out to be so totally selfish. Uh, not a particle of symphony, sympathy for anyone but herself. And she goes on and on and on. And eventually she walks out of earshot. And then the two commentators who, who hear the conversation, they turn and speak to each other. And the first one says, I'm troubled, sir, because this unhappy creature didn't seem to me to be the sort of soul who ought to be in damnation. She's not wicked. She's just a silly, garrulous old woman who's in the habit of grumbling. And the answer came back. Well, the question is, is she a grumbler or just a grumble? How can there be a grumble without a grumbler? And the overhead, the answer came back. You've, you've had this experience. It begins with a grumbling mood. And yourself still distinct from it. Perhaps even criticizing it. You can still repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day you can do that no longer. Then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood, or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself, going on and on forever, like a machine. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is saying? 
on the overhead. You see, self-pity feeds upon itself. Anger feeds itself. And eventually you get to the place where you can't hear anything other than your own eternal autobiography. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is it's bad enough in this life where you can see people getting more and more locked into the prison of self-absorption and being self-referential and self-centered and always unhappy and impatient uh, uh, with everything in life because I I never get things the way I want them to go. And so in this life, you could become a, a pretty miserable person. But it's far worse when you die. Because your soul does not die. Your soul keeps on going. And, and, and you take this trajectory of self-centeredness and grumbling that you've been on. And you keep going in that same direction for hundreds and thousands of years. And eventually that is a living hell. Utter hell. Until there's no more you left distinct from your sins. And the grumbler has just become an eternal grumble. And please note, again, your heart by nature is already inclined in that direction. It's not on God's side. And the overhead, there are two things that can happen every time something bad happens to you. You can either trust God or trust yourself. And trusting yourself is the path down to this result. Down to hell. And your heart is naturally going there unless there's an intervention. So on the overhead, number one, that's what impatience is. And number two, that's why developing the supernatural fruit of patience and the fruit of long-suffering, why it's so important and so crucial. And so finally, number three, how are we, what are we going to do about it? How can we develop this fruit of patience? Here's what you can do. I want to see three hints here in this text of how we can, uh, you can develop biblical supernatural fruit of patience and long suffering and standing firm. You develop patience in the present, number one, number two, by looking to the past, and number three, by hoping in the future. So number one, you develop patience in the present. Where do we look for this? Who's the illustration in our text? It's Job. Job learned perseverance. Job learned patience. Why? Because he was suffering. I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is the number one way you learn patience. When something taxes you. Or when some suffering or some difficulty comes upon you. But please note, and this is very important, you don't automatically learn patience just by suffering alone. Just by being stoic. Just by keeping a stiff upper lip, just by saying, I'm not gonna let this happen, let this get to me. That's not learning patience. That's simply hardening your heart against your circumstances. That's developing, a, that's not developing a humble and a loving and a peaceful heart. That's just trying to steel yourself uh, to be uncaring and indifferent and unflinching in the face of suffering. But if you want to see how true biblical patience is developed, in the midst of suffering, look, for example, at, at, at Psalm 77, sometimes. The psalmist, he, he starts out here by talking about all the problems he's facing. And then suddenly he says, but I will meditate upon the Lord. Uh, he, the psalmist, he's freaking out about all his troubles and his distress. And then he says, but I will meditate. Troubles are happening. But he says, I'm going I'm to process my troubles through prayer and meditation. I'm going to think about the truth of God. 
until I get patient. You say what truth? By thinking of, of the past and thinking of the future. In terms of the past, think all the things the Lord has done in history. Think on those. Think what he's done for his people, like the Exodus. So look at Psalm 77, beginning in verse 10. He says, uh, to, to this I'll appeal. When you most high, you stretched out your hand. Uh, when the deeds, uh, 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 I remember the, the deeds of the Lord. I remember your miracles of long ago. I'll consider your works and meditate upon your mighty deeds. Uh, your mighty arm that you, with which you redeemed your people. The descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Uh, you, your path led through the, your paths led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. You led your people like a flock uh, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So first, you look to the past and all that God has done. If you want to learn patience, you look at Moses. You look at Job. But if you really want to learn patience, look at the ultimate Job, the one to whom Job points, Yeshua. Job was an innocent sufferer. Sort of. <laughs> when I say sort of, uh, I mean Job was not perfect, uh, but he was better than most. Job was living a better than average moral life, but he was also experiencing a worse than average circumstantial life. His circumstances of life were worse than average, but his morality and his virtue was better than average. So he had a right to complain. He said, I'm living a better than average moral life, but I've experienced a worse than average life, and that's not fair. And it wasn't fair. And he wrestled with that. She might say he was a relatively innocent sufferer. He did not deserve the life he was having. But only Yeshua is the true Job. He's only Yeshua, because he's only Yeshua. He's the only absolutely perfectly innocent sufferer. Only Yeshua lived a perfect life. Only Yeshua was totally innocent. Only Yeshua loved the Lord with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself fully, perfectly. So only Yeshua deserved a great life. And yet he got a terrible life. He was misunderstood. He was penniless and poor. He was despised and rejected. Uh, He was betrayed. Uh, He was denied. He was arrested on, on trumped up charges. He was beaten and whipped and tortured and then crucified and killed. Even his own father abandoned him. But through it all, all the agony and all the pain, he was perfectly patient. He was the only innocent sufferer. Yeshua is the true Job. The true innocent sufferer who really deserved a great life and got a terrible life. And during the whole time, he was perfectly patient absolutely patient all the forces of darkness and evil and hell came down on him and he stood his ground because he knew we were at stake we were behind him having no defense of our own and if the darkness and the evil got past him we would be lost so he obeyed his father and stood his ground even in the face of hell he said to the father not my will but yours be done there's patience and long suffering. He says this in Luke twenty two, forty two. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. There's patience. There's standing your ground. There's hyper standing. All the forces of darkness come down upon him and he does not flinch. He doesn't flinch an inch. He goes to the cross. He obeys his father. And on the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That is not a defiant complaint. 
That's the agony of lost love. As Yeshua became sin for us and, and suffered our punishment and the judgment that our sin deserved uh, and, and, and uh, being cast out of the presence of God. So why did he do it? Why was, he, was Yeshua perfectly patient? You know, Job, in contrast, Job was not patient. Job was anything but. Read the book of Job. Job only learned patience at the very end. But throughout the book, Job is not patient or long-suffering. Oh, he's complaining. He's screaming. He's arguing. He's railing against God. He's accusing God. Job only learns patience at the end of the book. The book of Job says Job was blessed at the end because the Lord was full of mercy toward him. But why was Job forgiven his impatience? Why can you and I be forgiven our impatience? Here's why. Yeshua went to the tree, went to the execution stake. He died for your sins and mine. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. That's the general, but what's the more specific? Yeshua, through his perfect patience, atoned for your impatience. So that now the Father can be endlessly patient with you. Through Yeshua's finished work on the tree, if you are in Yeshua, the Father never gives up on you. On the overhead. Even when you fail him. Yeshua, through his perfect patience, atoned for our impatience so that God could be perfectly patient with us. You talk about long-suffering. Look at Yeshua. You talk about holding your ground against all the forces of darkness and evil and all the forces of the universe coming down upon him. Look at Yeshua on the overhead. Now take that. Take that truth and meditate on it. When troubles are happening in your life, Take that and meditate on what Yeshua did for you. Say to your heart, if Yeshua was perfectly, if you were perfectly patient, when, when God was actually, your father was actually abandoning you, and you did it all for me, then I can be patient in my difficult circumstances for you, Yeshua. If you see Yeshua saving you through his patience, his infinite patience, his, his undeserved suffering, the true and ultimate Job that will make you into someone who can be patient. And have to worry about you ever being impatient, uh, that you'll be condemned. No, because if you're in Messiah, then you'll know that Yeshua, through his perfect patience, atones for your impatience. So that God can now be perfectly patient with you. And if you meditate on that, then it will send you down the right road toward becoming more and more like Yeshua and walking in the fruits of the Spirit. So number one, patience means you're forgiving and gracious towards difficult people. Number two, you're courageous and trusting of God in difficult circumstances. Now you may ask, well, how do I do that? Uh, and why should I trust a God who allows such suffering? Why should I trust him? Because he's not the essence of what patience is. It's trusting God. Uh, why should I do so? Joni Erickson Tata, a Christian writer who's a paraplegic, uh, lived a whole, a whole life of, of tremendous suffering, and he was able to. She's able to endure it with love and patience and trust in God and compassion for others. And this is what she writes on the overhead. She writes this: Yeshua is worth trusting. Period. End of argument. After all, when they hang you on a cross uh, like a piece of meat on a hook, you have the final word on suffering. Our God didn't just stay in heaven and look down from, a, from, from up above uh, and plan our lives from afar. No, he comes down into this world. He gets his hands dirty. He relates to us. He understands us. He suffers with us. 
He's hung on a cross like a piece of meat. He knows what your suffering is like. He loves you. He cares about you. Do not say you can't trust him. On the overhead, look at him. Look at Yeshua, trusting God under infinite pressure for you. And that will make it possible for you to trust him when you're under finite pressure. Here's how you develop patience. When troubles happen, you meditate and you pray and you process the situation in light of who you are in Messiah. And that your life is hidden with him. And that he is your life. You meditate both on what he's done for you in the past and also what he's going to do for you in the future. Because he's coming again. Look at the verse eight, James 5, verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Now, why is that an encouragement? Because you know how it ends. <laughs> you, know, you know, the Lord and his kingdom will triumph. Well, I have a confession to make. Sometimes when I'm reading a novel, I cheat a little and I peek and I look at the end. I read the end ahead of time. <laughs> a spoiler alert. <laughs> I know many of you are going to think, that is terrible. <laughs> but that's my confession. Why? Because I want to know who's alive, who's dead, how things turn out. I don't know. I don't like the suspense. <laughs> but if I know the end, then I can handle reading the rest of the book. <laughs> I can read the novel. I don't get upset. I don't get nervous. Now, all of you think that that is terrible, David. Here's my defense. God does it too. <laughs> he tells you the end from the beginning. He's going to come back. He's going to heal the world. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. He's going to make everything right. If you trust him, all the deepest desires of your heart will be fulfilled. And that day, every injustice we put right. He tells you now, now how all will end in the end. So you can handle the suspense and you can handle the suffering when it comes. Your life can be tough and difficult and painful. But you know in the end that justice will prevail. You know in the end you will be fulfilled. And that's the reason why James says to be patient. Why? Because the Lord is coming. So patience is essential. It's a battle for your heart. Every day. Every day there's a struggle between patience and impatience. If you want a happy life, you need to learn to be patient. On the overhead, how do you get patience? Number one, you look at the creator. Let it humble you. Because patience is a lack of humility. And you don't know how your life should go. In God's grand scheme of things. Number two, you look at God as the redeemer. Atoning for you through the cross. That warms your heart with love for God and love for others. Because impatience is also a lack of love. A lack of love for God and lack of love for others. Number three, you look forward. You focus on the hope you have in the Lord. You, you know, everything's going to be okay in the end. Because impatience is also a lack of hope. Impatience is a lack of humility, a lack of love, a lack of hope. But God is the creator. And he is the redeemer. And he is coming again as the world healer. Meditate on that. Only uh, when, when you're in troubling times, meditate on that and you will become a person of patience. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'd like the music team to come back up. Hallelujah.
Thank you, Father. Father, forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for our grumbling. Forgive me for responding to difficult people and difficult circumstances with negativity and cynicism and anger and resentment. Forgive me for responding, Lord, with lack of love and lack of forgiveness, lack of grace, lack of faith. Help me to be long-suffering. Lord, in the face of disappointing circumstances or, or trials, when things don't go my way, help me nonetheless to stand strong, to be immovable in you, to live the way I ought to live, to do the things I ought to do, to be the person I ought to be, regardless of what has befallen me or what I've not gotten that I wanted to get. Help me to hyperstand in you, Yeshua. Help me, Lord, in the face of disappointments and trials, not to trust in myself or in my idea of how my life should go. Not, not to get absorbed in self-pity, an eternal autobiography, but to trust in you, Yeshua. How many trust in your timing, your schedule, your wisdom, your providence, your plan for my life? Help me lean not on my own understanding. Because, Lord, you are God. You are worthy of my worship and my service. I'll find my rest nowhere but in your will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what you're up to. So I will stand my ground in you, Lord Yeshua, regardless of what life throws my way. I know that, I know that patience versus impatience is a battle for my soul. And I pray, Lord, you will strengthen me now uh, to humble me, to remember all that you've done for me, how you, you've infinitely suffered on my behalf, and for me to, to look with hope towards your final redemption and to stand strong in you. For I pray this in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.